We have a time and a place for MicroConf Europe 2022. It's going to be November 15th through the 17th at the Intercontinental in Malta. This will be a limited capacity event. It's going to be smaller than previous MicroConf Europe's due to a, a number of factors. So it's definitely something that if you want to go to Malta, to MicroConf Europe in November, you're going to want to head to microconf.com Europe for more details and to buy your ticket. In terms of speakers, I, of course, will be speaking per usual. And we have Guillaume Mubesh. He's the founder and CEO of Lemlist, which is a company that has bootstrapped to eight figures in ARR. Hope to see you in Malta, November 15th through the 17th. That's microconf.com slash Europe. Welcome back once again to Startups with the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. And this week, I speak with Sam Dogan. He's the founder of The Financial Samurai, which is one of the longest running and most popular personal finance blogs or news websites. He, he writes all the content himself. You'll actually hear about that in the interview. He's written, I believe it's 2,500 essays slash blog posts in the past 13 years. Just an incredible example of relentless execution. And he's also written a book called Buy This, Not That that we dig into. And we talk quite a bit about achieving financial freedom personally, about how to think about money, a lot of really great mindset stuff in this episode from Sam. Before we dive into that, we get a new review in Apple Podcasts from Adarkus, five stars, and they say, practical and relatable advice for all entrepreneurs. Startups for the Rest of Us truly educates and inspires with each topic and guest. The show is a must-listen for anyone considering stepping into the entrepreneurial space. Please keep up the incredible work. Thank you so much, Adarkus, for that review. And if you haven't left us a rating, you don't even need to leave a review. You can go click the five stars in wherever you consume this podcast. We'd really appreciate it. Or log into Apple Podcasts. I believe we're at about 940-something worldwide ratings. You don't even have to write anything. You can just click the five stars. And I would love to get to that 1,000 rating mark. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Sam Dogan. Sam Dogan, thanks for joining me on the show. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I uh, was mentioned to you offline. I came about your book because of the Tropical MBA podcast, longtime fan of, of Dan and Ian's. I heard Dan interview you and I was intrigued. So then I went and bought the audiobook, as I'm apt to do. People know I'm an audiobook addict. I have almost 900 audiobooks, I think it is, in my Audible account. And by this, not that, is now one of them. So if folks want to jump to the to the end, uh, your book is called By This, Not That. You're the financial samurai. And what I like about your book is it it isn't the typical, a lot of the typical advice. I've read all the personal finance books, both from the old guard, from the 90s and the early 2000s. And then there's this new wave of kind of bloggers, podcasters talking about it. And you start to hear the same advice over and over, which I think is is good, right? But you have a lot of stuff in your book that I hadn't heard elsewhere. And I want to kick us off by looking a little bit at the 4% rule. The 4% rule for folks who don't know, do you want to define it real, really quick, like where it came about and, and what it means? And then I want to talk about your sentiments and mine around it. Yeah, so the 4% rule was devised in the 1990s by Bill Bengen, a retirement researcher, who said that if you withdraw at a 4% rate, you will unlikely run out of money for the next 30 years in retirement. And that has been a great rule. So the inverse of 4% is 25x. So if you can accumulate a net worth equal to 25 times your expenses, you're financially independent. And I don't agree with the 4% rule at all. Not at all. But 
It's because one, I left in 2012 from my day job. And so I'm a practicing retiree. I'm not a researcher retiree who has a nice paycheck and a pension. I'm actually living through this. And then two, since the 1990s, the risk-free rate of return, which is the 10-year bond yield, has come down from 5 to 6% to now 2.8%. So back in the 1990s, when he came up with a 4% rule, of course, you wouldn't run out of money if you could invest your money at a risk-free rate of return of 5 to 6%. But over the past 30 years, many things have changed, including the internet, or more uh, you know, globalization, and the rates have come down. So I disagree with the rule, and I can tell you what a better multiple, a better rule is. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's dig into that. Okay. So if you want to achieve financial independence, you need to have, I believe, enough investment income to cover your basic living expenses. So you don't have to work if you don't want to. You can do whatever you want. So instead of using the 4% rule or the inverse 25x expenses, use a multiple off of your income. So if you use a multiple off of your income, you cannot cheat your way to financial independence, which is what I see a lot of people do. And it's up to everyone to decide what it is they want to do. But you can't suddenly say, I'm going to slash all expenses down to 20000 a year, eat ramen noodles and just drink water, and that's it. And boom, I'm financially independent. So if you use a multiple based off income, it always forces you to continuously save and invest as your income grows, which is hopefully for most of us. Yeah, and I have similar sentiments around the 4% rule, but I think for different reasons. It's based on the, the, the Trinity study, right? And what they did is they looked back at returns, I think from the 1920s or the 1930s until essentially present day. So it was like 80, 90 years of, of returns. And they looked, they did kind of a Monte Carlo simulation and they said, we're, we're getting kind of deep in the weeds here. I like this though. And they, and they basically said, it was like 80% or 90% of the years between those two, if you retired that year, then you would last 30 years. But there were there was a good chunk of years where the sequence of returns would have screwed you. Meaning if you retired right before 2008, 2009, you, you know, your investments get cut in half or more, you don't have enough for 30 years, right? And even then, the, num- the percent they were using, it was pretty high. It was like whatever, 8, 9, 10%, right? That's the average over that long term, which sounds great. Until you look at, you know what expected returns were? Like 2016, I sold a company, right? I had a ton of cash come into my personal bank account. Expected returns for stocks at that point, the expected 10-year returns were 4%. That's because valuations were higher, right? And so when I looked at 4% returns of equities, that's not risk-free, that's equities. That's if I was 100% in equities. I was like, this is re- there's no chance the 4% rule makes sense in this, I would say in this day and age, but in this economic climate, right? That, that was 2016 or that was 15, 20 years ago. And so when I started looking at what would it take for me to have enough money in the bank to never have to work again? I was like, well, what about what's what about the two and a half percent rule or the three percent? You know, I just started jacking that number down, meaning I needed more cash in the bank. It's just a cushion, right? A mental cushion that I had. Yeah. So instead of 25x expenses, my recommended target is 20 times your average annual gross income. So hundred thousand dollar gross income, two million bucks, and so forth. Yeah, and that, and you touched on this earlier, but you said that way you can't cheat your way to it because I have had. Let's talk about fire real quick and define it. Right, financial independence, retire early. What is the fire movement? So it's a movement. I, I think I helped kickstart in two thousand and nine during the bottom of the financial crisis. I literally started financialsamurai.com in July two thousand and nine because I thought I was going to get blown out. I lost thirty five percent of my net worth in six months. That took ten years to build. And so FIRE is basically an idea where you save and invest aggressively so you have enough passive income 
to cover your basic living expenses. And the more your living expenses can be covered, in other words, the better your lifestyle that it can provide, then there's just different degrees of fire where you go up to like fat fire, right? But I've noticed that since 2009, the definition has changed a lot where there's all these different types of sub-fires because everybody's on a different path to financial independence. And it's actually really hard and it takes a long time to save and invest your way to generate enough passive income. So you have these new terms that come up to fit someone's stage, which is totally fine because you need the motivation. But at the end of the day, you can't lie to yourself about your own financial situation. And so I, I hope people just focus on the basics of enough passive investment income to cover your living expenses. Yeah, and that's that's an issue I've had with FIRE. I don't know if listeners of the show know this, but if I was not like a startup bootstrapper, blogger type podcaster, I would be personal finance. Like that is my second love is personal finance, investing. And I sneak a personal finance or investing episode onto this show about every six months. <laughs> That's about what, what the audience right. will allow. Yeah, this is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I've struggled with fire. And, and you know what? to each their own, right? If it works for people, that's great. But I struggled with it, a lot of it, because when I started hearing about it, I was 35, I had two kids, a mortgage, and frankly, all the people who I heard talking about fire were these, it's like a 24-year-old with really low expenses, and they would, this is, comes back to the cheating it. It's like, I can live on $15,000 a year because I have two roommates, and I don't run my air conditioner, and I only eat Top Ramen. And I'm always like, yeah, I guess, I just, that's not a life I want to live. I, I, I'd <laughs> rather work <laughs> at that point and not live like that, right? And so I kept hearing those stories, and I was like, this isn't appealing at all. The idea of retiring early was appealing, but the idea of doing it almost like I'm in prison. I'm living on bread and water. It was just like, this is dumb, right? That to me, that was my, always my issue with it. But now I'm hearing there's this, like you said, there's, there's regular fire, which is where people quote unquote cheat their expenses down to 20 grand a year, 30 grand a year, which look, of course that's possible, but it's not a life I think a lot of us want to live. But then there's fat fire, which is where it's like, Hey, it, it is what hundred grand a year, right? 150, whatever I need to live. I just need a lot more money saved. And then barista fire. I saw in your book, I'd never heard that term, but it's basically where you, you keep some type of side hustle? Is that the idea? Or you, you still have income coming in from a, a day job type thing? Well, the idea is that if you work, at, let's say, at Starbucks, you'll get uh, health care insurance. So right now, my family pays 2200 a month in unsubsidized health care insurance because we don't have a job, right? So that's the idea, to get some kind of income going and to have that health care benefit. And that is a crying shame. And it's something that if you're not in the US, you don't realize how catastrophic our health insurance system is for entrepreneurs. I run Tiny Seed. We funded 80 entrepreneurs, 80, 80 companies. I've invested in 20 others. So I'm, I'm over 100 companies invested. And one of the biggest issue with these early stage bootstrap founders is I don't want to lose my health insurance because it's two f***ing thousand dollars a month to get it. And what, what is, how, how are we going to fix that? <laughs> That's not the topic for today. But do you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, have you, have you, uh, you've obviously been impacted by, by our health, health system. Well, I mean, so strategically, understand that if you have an income that is 400% or the less of the federal poverty level limit, you can get subsidized health care insurance. So what actually happens is a lot of the fire folks will actually have not a lot of income. That's only, you know, about four times at most from the federal poverty limit. The federal poverty limit per person is like something like thirteen dollars or $14,000 per person. And so, again, that's the line, that's the lean lifestyle you would be living if you wanted subsidized health care. Now, the other solution is as an entrepreneur, you start your business and then you get a 
group health care plan, and then you deduct that as an expense. So if your effective tax rate is 25%, then it's 25% off, let's say $2,000 a month for a family. So that's a way you can use it. You know, it's an expense, but it's still a lot of money. Yeah, that's an interest. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> you bringing that in. There you Obviously, go. someone who's been doing it. With Financial Samurai, are you still actively, because it started as a blog, right? And are you still actively blogging or do you now have staff that blog on the site? No, no, no. So um, starting in 2009, I've written 99% of the content, published three times a week, every single week without fail since July 2009. And my wife edits it edits my content as well as my father and she does like the back end the you know the taxes and all that and we try to keep as lean as possible which is just my my wife and me and and in that way we don't have staff we don't have to manage anybody there's no turnover and we decided a long time ago to go the lifestyle route versus the big payout route because at the end of the day why are we doing a business i wanted to do a business because i wanted the freedom to do what i wanted I didn't want to have schedules. I didn't want to manage people or get told what to do at all or, or kowtow to any shareholders who wanted you know, a meeting or an update. So that was our, our plan. Yeah, that makes sense. Folks who listen to this podcast know that I, my definition of, of success or my definition of personal happiness is having freedom, purpose, and relationships. Right? And at given, any given time in my career, there was a time when I had freedom and it was, I had sold a company and I was working on an autopilot cash flow business bringing in 30K a month. I was totally free to do whatever I want and I was incredibly bored. So I didn't have purpose. I lost my, my professional purpose, which is something that I need. I need to be learning. I need, you know, it's, it's a personality thing. And then relationships, I think, is self-explanatory of like healthy friends and family relationships. It sounds like you have had freedom for quite some time. Have you gotten... I guess, have, has, has it ever gotten boring for you? And the reason I ask this is because this podcast has run for 615 episodes over 12 years. I started a blog in 2005 that I did for about six years and I kind of stopped because I got tired of it. You know, there, there are certain things over the years, like I get tired of businesses and I'm, I sell them and move on. But that's a personality thing. That's not everyone. So I'm curious if you've had moments where you've thought, you know, I'd love to work on something new, right? Or I want to do something else. Or, or is it like the, is three posts a week, it's not a grind and it's just something you love doing? You know, after 13 years, uh, first I made a promise to publish three times a week for 10 years to see how things would turn out. Because I generally feel that if you can stick with things long enough, good things will happen. But after the 10th year of doing it, I said, oh, I can sell the site or just chill out now. And I, and I, and I developed a muscle. It's just kind of like breathing, where if I can breathe forever, I can write forever. So three times a week is perfect cadence because it's about 15 hours a week of writing. So that gives me you know, two hours a day of writing purpose. And I believe the ultimate amount of time to work a week is about 20 hours. But then once I had my son in 2017... I got more motivated again. I don't know if it's like DNA evolution where once you have children, you just get pumped up to want to grind harder and provide more. But I decided, you know what, maybe I'll make another 15-year commitment to publishing three times a week because I think that the world is a really competitive and really brutal and beautiful place. And I worry about my children. You know, what if they can't get into a good school? What if they can't get a good job? And so I always thought, well, let me run Financial Samurai until they're in their teens, teach them everything I know about communication skills, written and oral, marketing, finance, investing, real estate, and give them those tools. And if they are spit out by society, they're rejected from everywhere, they can't get a job, at the very least, they can come back to work for dad and maybe take over the business one day. So I'm starting to think about the future. 
And you don't just think about the future. You planned a decade ahead and now you're looking 15 years out, man. I like hats off to you because when I plan for the future, I look at next year, maybe two years down the line, <laughs> but you committed to three posts a week. So let's just say 150 posts a year for 10 years. So you're like, right from the start, you're like, I'm calling my shot. I'm Babe Ruth, 1500 posts. I'm committing. Like, that's crazy. Is that, is that a personality thing? Is that just, is that just how you think? I mean, I just I just commitment. I, I feel like I've seen everybody who has actually succeeded at anything. They just stick with it. You know, I, I'm not very smart. I, don't, I didn't get great SAT scores. were quite mediocre. I didn't go to elite private school. But I saw the people who succeeded. And I was like, wow, you just had to stick with it. And then suddenly you can't forecast what's going to happen. But sooner or later, something good will happen if you stick with things. So, And I, I plan to live for another 15, 20 years. Like, I just want to live until my kids find someone that love them as much as I love them. And then, you know, maybe I can die and then be peaceful. So during that time, <laughs> I might as well, you know, work on financial samurai and teach them what I know. Because I think that's our duty as parents. Yeah, that's crazy. How old are your kids? You have a five-year-old and a... Five and a half and two and a half. Two and a half? Okay. So that's why I think, you know, 15, 20 years, hopefully yeah. they'll be under, understand the, the ways of life by then. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I have two kids as well, 16 and 12. And when they were five to seven, I started showing them, I don't know if you've heard of these, but these videos on YouTube called Cha-Ching. And there's like a whole series of cartoon videos. They're animated to oh, music. Check it out. Yeah. And it's great. They're like two to three minute videos. And there's like 10 or 15 of them. And each one covers, like one covers entrepreneurship and one covers like just money, earn, save, spend, and donate. There's just all these fun things. So anyways, I'm saying it for you, but you already know all this stuff in it. But you know, for folks who are listening, who have kids and that was just such a, it was a fun thing. We did it once or twice a day. And I love the idea. You know, I didn't have money education as a kid. Certainly they didn't teach anything in school. And my parents were busy working and just trying to pay the bills. And so all the money education I got was on my own, right? I sought out some magazine. I mean, this is before the internet existed, but realistically it was like money magazine and, you know, whatever personal finance book I could scrape from the, the library. What was your path? Like, how did you get, uh, did you have a mentor or someone like a, a parent who taught you or did you go out and just self-educate? My father was my mentor. I remember, I think it was sophomore year in high school, he sat me down at the breakfast table and showed me the back of a newspaper and educated me on what these tickers were and what the movements were. So that was really uh, the start of it. I always wanted to be wealthy because I had friends, you know, poor friends and rich friends, but the rich friends always were the entrepreneurs with the the mansion in the hills, you know, with the nice cars and the chauffeur. I was like, wow. And then my poor friends were you know, just kind of minimum wage laborers. And so the dichotomy was really eye-opening when I was growing up in Malaysia as a middle school student. So I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't have the courage, I guess, and then the lack of options. Because once I graduated from college, I was able to get the job at Goldman Sachs in New York City, and which is a top investment bank at the time, and it still is. And it was too risky for me to say no, especially after 55 interviews. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go the, you know, the tried and true route, try to go for it for 10, 15, maybe 18 years. My original plan was to grind it out until age 40 and then have enough capital and have enough courage to try to be an entrepreneur and do something on my own. But in the end, I ended up leaving several months before my 35th birthday because I was able to negotiate a severance that paid for five to six years of living expenses, which was something like, you know, in other words, being able to work until age 40 kind of. Yeah, tell me more about that because you've you mentioned that a few times, I think, in the interview and maybe in your book. And I'm like, how do you, when you quit, you don't get a severance. So what? How did this happen? What What was the story? 
So fundamentally, please understand that if you quit, yeah, you don't get a severance and you're probably not eligible for unemployment benefits for 26 weeks. What I saw during the global financial crisis was rounds after rounds of layoffs. And then some of my friends were laid off and I said, how are you? Is everything okay? Can I try to get you a job where I work? And they said, I'm okay, I'm okay. And they talked to me about their severances. I was like, oh, you got two to three weeks a year in severance, uh, two to three weeks per year you worked as severance. I was like, oh, that's a pretty good, I, that's not bad. You know, you can actually take it easy for six months or eight months, you're good. And so I finally developed an idea in my head in October 2011, because I was sick of work by that time. I said, if I could negotiate a severance, in other words, just get laid off and get that severance check and all my deferred compensation of stock and cash and this private investment we were forced to make at the bottom of the market, I'm out of here because that severance was a lot of money and it could pay for at least five years of normal living expenses. And so I negotiated with my manager. I said, look, I've been here for 11 years. I found my replacement. I'm gonna provide a seamless transition for me to leave and to train my employee over the next three months so the clients are good, you won't see a drop off in revenue. So I was selling myself on the way out. You know, most people sell themselves to try to get the job. I was trying to sell myself on the way out. And I said, look, and you can save on my base salary compensation and my bonus. And because you're going to pay your jun the junior guy and the business will rebound and do well. And so at the end of the day, they said, you know, OK, let's do it. If you don't want to be here, we understand. Thank you for your service. Let's do it. Wow, that's crazy. I have never heard of anyone doing that. Well, and here's the thing. If you plan to quit your job or retire early or start a business, there's no downside in trying to negotiate a severance and try to get, you know, and raise your hand for the next layoff. Right. But. I think most people don't do that because most people don't think actually about the company. Because if you leave, leave your company two weeks notice, you're leaving your colleagues and your boss in a lurch. It takes a while to find someone, to train someone. So it's actually not being thoughtful by just leave, quitting. And then two, I think people are afraid of confrontation. And maybe you know it's why people break up over text message or they ghost people, they ignore because they, they feel bad trying to come up with a win-win scenario. So please always think there's a better solution to any kind of problem that you have. And so on the entrepreneur side, because obviously you run Financial Samurai, you're a solopreneur with your, it sounds like with your wife and, and she's, she's helping out and you don't have employees. You said that you made the choice deliberately to be a lifestyle entrepreneur versus like on this show, I often talk about, you know, ambitious bootstrappers and lifestyle bootstrappers. And both are great paths depending on what you want to do. And in fact, I was a lifestyle entrepreneur for several years and then I got a little bored and I decided to get ambitious. And then that was really stressful, actually. So I'll tell you, a lot of people who I see make the lifestyle choice, they they get bored with it and they switch later. You know what I mean? After three, four, five years, but you, you haven't done that. So I'm curious, A, what made you decide to go this route? I think you touched on some of it earlier, but why do you think that you've been able to stick with it all these years and and been happy with that path? Well, I think the first reason was when I, when I joined Goldman Sachs in 1999 at the age of 22, Goldman went public that year. And so the partners ended up making tens of millions of dollars. And the VPs were making, you know, maybe five, ten million dollars of, you know, windfall. And they didn't seem happier to me. And I knew that if I worked for 10, 15, 20 years, I might have a chance to get to that level of wealth one day. And so I saw right away that, okay, maybe money, a lot of money doesn't buy a lot more happiness. I saw divorces, I saw stress, I saw people working until 8 to 9 p.m. 
And I was getting in at 5.30 a.m. and leaving after 7 p.m. already, and I was feeling crushed. And so it gave me that perspective right away, right after college. Okay, maybe money, greater money doesn't buy me more happiness. And so when I left in 2012 at age 34 and a half, I achieved my enough number, which was $3 million. And I was able to generate about $80,000 a year in passive income, which provides for a normal lifestyle for one person, maybe two people in San Francisco, which is a very expensive city. And the drop in active income by about 80% was tough for the first couple months. But the freedom that I was able to achieve afterwards to be able to go for a walk in the park, no more stress, no more commute. I mean, I started getting gray hairs at 33 and all those gray hairs went away by age 35 because my stress went away and my chronic pain went away, my lower back pain, my sciatica, all this stuff. And I was like, wow, you know, the health benefits alone of living a more peaceful and less stressful life was worth it. And so if you combine that, and I really enjoy writing and connecting with people. And if you think about it, Financial Samurai, since it's been around since 2009, a lot of people have grown up with Financial Samurai now. So the readers that started in 2009, 2010 have told me about the families they started, the wealth they have built, and the things they've been able to do. And so it's been such a great and rewarding journey that I just don't want to quit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really impressive. The term that I use on this podcast is relentless execution. It's someone who shows up and ships every day, every week for years and years. And you have obviously done that. The fact that you are still coming up with topics after, I mean, you've literally must have written thousands of blog posts. Yeah, 2,500 probably over. Yeah, it's really impressive. And, but life is life every day, if you think about it. If you just look on your, let's say, Twitter feed, or your newsfeed, there's like something new, crazy going on every single day. So I, I don't know. I think I think that there's always something interesting to write about and to analyze. And it's just a fun journey. And I and I have friends who are worth a lot, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars. I know a couple of billionaires. And I don't see their lifestyle being that much better except for private jets and mansions. And then if you're friends with them, you just say, okay, well, I mean, invite me on the jet next time mansion, you go to Hawaii. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> for real. <laughs> I'll, I'll mansion sit for you. It's okay. Well, so realistically then, someone comes to you and says, I'm gonna gi- I want to give you $20 million, $30 million for Financial Samurai. Would you do it? I wouldn't do it because let's say it's $20 million. So after taxes, that's like $12 million. Maybe it's $10 million, right? That sucks. I mean, having to sell something you love and then create economic waste through taxes is like the worst. You know, I studied economics and taxes is, is, is the worst. It's like such a drag. And then you, you know, I've done it for so long that I just feel like, man, I sold it just for money. It's part of who I am. You know, if you love your baby, you never sell your baby. And if you do sell your baby, maybe it's because you really didn't love your baby or you stopped loving him. Let's be, let's be brutally honest. I've had many people in the personal finance space sell their sites. And why did they do that? Because they wanted the money more than they wanted to do what they wanted to do. And that's just the way it is, right? That's capitalism. But I feel like Financial Samurai is like my second, third child, my first child, actually. And so I just want to see it grow up. And if it can help people, it's like I'm not writing stuff to SEO optimize, to make affiliate, you know, it's just that that is soul sucking to me, which is why you don't see that. What you see on Financial Samurai are real stories that pertain to real people in every aspect of their life over the course of their lives. And that's a key point of buy this, not that as well, is to tackle some of life's biggest dilemmas so you can move forward with confidence and less regret. Yeah. The book title, buy this, not that. What is that referencing? 
So it's referencing that we can't make every single choice possible. Every choice we make is an opportunity cost of not making the other choice. And the longer you live, the more joy you will have, but the more regret you will have for making suboptimal decisions. And so as I've grown older, you know, I'm 45 now, I've seen a lot of these things where, man, I wish someone could have told me why you should make this decision over that. And so I provide a lot of examples, such as, you know, whether you should join a startup or an established firm in your 20s or 30s, whether you should live in an expensive city or a lower cost city to save money, or whether you should marry for love or marry for money or have children sooner rather than later. And so these are big life events that I wanted to address because money is just a means to an end, right? So once you have enough money to cover your basics, life is about living those decisions. And I want to help people stop saying, if I knew then what I know now, my life would be better. And the simple solution to do that is to read and learn and listen from someone who's been there before. And I want to circle back to something you said earlier. You said you had assets of, I think it was three and a half million and you were making 80,000 a year in passive income off those. You want to walk us briefly through, if, if there's a listener out there who has a few million saved, like your mental model of how you allocated assets and how you were able to pull passive income, you know, to that extent. Well, it was three million and about 80,000. So I worked in equities and investment banking. So what I did was I tried to save 50% of my after-tax income every single year and diversify into real estate because I was already tied to the equities market with my stock and so forth and my career. And so I try to invest as much as possible into real estate because real estate is a real asset that just doesn't go poof in valuation overnight, loses 30% of its value because it, it missed some earnings estimate by 5%, whatever, right? So I wanted a real asset that generated a higher yield that was less volatile. So I invested, so about 50% of my current passive income, which is greater than 80,000 now, it comes from real estate, physical real estate, over four rental properties and online real estate in terms of real estate crowdfunding, private real estate deals. And then about 25% comes from dividend stocks. And then about 7% comes from bonds, like uh, tax-free municipal bonds. And then the rest comes from savings, CDs, and private equity distributions. And so you've got to understand where you are in your business and how you want to diversify. Because the key is once you achieve a wealth that's you're comfortable with, that you're happy with, where you can just kick back or leave completely, you don't want to lose it, right? You want to invest in a risk-adjusted manner, in a risk-appropriate manner, based on your goals and your lifestyle. So I'm relatively risk-averse because I have two kids, my wife doesn't work, I don't have a job, but of course I have financial samurai and my investments. So unlike perhaps most entrepreneurs who plow back their retained earnings into their company, I've plowed back my retained earnings into investments so I can have more money soldiers so that one day if you know, Google says, Financial Samurai, you stink, you know, I'm okay. You know, I'll be okay. Very cool. Well, sir, congrats on the Wall Street Journal bestseller. I know, it, oh, I know that yeah. just happened. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. And again, for folks listening, the book is Buy This, Not That. It's available Amazon, Bards & Noble, all the bookstores you would go to. And if folks want, obviously, financialsamurai.com and then on Twitter. A lot of our folks are there. So financial samurai, but without the I. Is that right? It's financial samurai? Yeah. So you can just go to financial samurai with the I.com. And then if you want to get the book, it's forward slash BTNT and you can get all the details. But on Twitter, it's financial samurai without the I because I started it in 2009 and it didn't have enough space for the I. Oh. 
So I just was like, all right, whatever. And I just stuck with it. I guess I could change it, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's so funny. I, I've, I've had a few friends who've changed their Twitter handles over the years. So, well, sir, thanks so much for uh, joining me on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thanks again to Sam and for you for coming back every week for another dose of tasty goodness from Startups for the Rest of Us. If you have not checked out our YouTube channel, I'm releasing a weekly video at this point. It's microconf.com slash YouTube. And in the past few weeks, I've covered topics like SaaS sales funnels, micro SaaS products, are they actually profitable? Winning go-to-market strategy, two things investors look for in a SaaS business, and many other topics that are related to building, launching, and growing SaaS companies. So check it out, microconf.com slash YouTube if you haven't already. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 618. See you next week.